0: This is America on the Road, winner of the International Automotive Media Conference Gold Medal Award for radio and now in its 26th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. There's a question for you. Do you live in one of the best states for driving or are you living in one of the worst? We'll have the results of a new study for you coming up. And BMW is sending a fond farewell to an engine that has served it well for decades. We'll have the details on that as we continue. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and drivingtoday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at mercuryinsurance.com. Hi, I'm Jack Nierad and back with us. uh, He was ill last week and and still a little bit under the weather, but back with us is co-host Chris Teague. Chris, I'm glad you're feeling better.
1: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be back into the, the land of the living. It was one of those uh, illnesses where you kind of feel like a foreign, like an alien when you finally make your way back out into the public. So uh, happy to be out and about for the first time in a couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, well, congratulations on getting better. I'm glad that has happened. I, I have experienced the same thing you went through and uh, it's, it's not a picnic. So I'm, I'm glad you're back with us and uh, on the mend and getting close to being completely healthy. This week, we have a terrific guest. His uh, name is Dave Sowers. He's head of marketing for Ram commercial vehicles. He'll give us the inside details on all the Ram work trucks, but many of those vehicles are now being used by consumers as well, and we'll talk with him about that. As kind of an interesting switch of what's going on with commercial vehicles. Uh, I think kind of COVID-related, among other things. In the road test segment, Chris, what vehicle will you be describing for us this week?
1: I was behind the wheel of the 2022 Jeep Compass.
0: A very nice vehicle, and uh, I'm eager to get your take on that. I haven't been behind the wheel of one in a couple of years or so, so uh, we'll see how that goes and how that went for you and in the weather that you're having uh, back in your hometown. This past week, I got a chance to drive more than 500 miles in the 2021 Honda Accord Hybrid. The 2022 has not been released yet, so we were driving a 2021. I learned a lot about the vehicle on the way, so we'll discuss that. Uh, before we do any of that, though, um, we're going to have some of the latest in automotive news for you, and including what BMW engine is going to breathe its last. <laughs> that certainly is coming up. And uh, we will reveal to you the best states to drive in and the worst states to drive in, at least according to uh, a recent survey. And we'll see whether we agree with that survey or not. So with Chris Teague, this is Jack Nierad with you. Thanks so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Stay with us and we'll be right back. <music> Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Chris Teague. This is Jack Nierad back with you. We're so glad Chris is back with us on the mend from his illness last week. Uh, we had Gino Eppler with us last week, but great to have Chris back with us and, uh, Interesting news, and I think it relates to the two states in which we live, among other things, Chris, and uh, it is a uh, survey and study of the best and worst states to drive in. This according to the personal finance website WalletHub. Le- let me uh, ask you to guess, Chris, whether you live in a state that's probably pretty good for driving or not so good.
1: I'm going to take a wild guess that with uh, just a million people in the entire state, we probably are one of the best.
0: Yeah, you're not in the top 10, but I venture to guess that you are uh, among the best. Uh, I'm surprised at some of the states that are on the top 10. I'm surprised by a lot of things. I am not surprised that the state in which I live is toward the bottom uh, of all the states in which to drive. What they do is they look at a lot of different metrics. In fact, 31 key metrics. That's more than I can count. Well, I guess I could count to 31 if I really tried. Uh, But the data ranges from average gas prices to amount of rush hour traffic, uh, the quality of the roads. A a bunch of things go into this, and uh, it's at least pretending to be scientific. (laughs) So uh, we will see. Well, let me count down uh, the top five best states for driving. Uh, they are Texas, North Carolina, Kansas, Oklahoma, and the number one, the absolute best state in which to drive is Iowa, which is a bit of a surprise to me. I think probably that you run into bad some bad weather in Iowa through the years. Here are the worst states, counting down from 45 to 50, the worst states in which to drive. The state of Washington, Maryland, California, Delaware, Rhode Island, and Hawaii. and I think uh, fuel prices have a lot to do with, with many of those things. Uh, West Virginia has very little rush hour traffic. California, the state in which I live, has the worst rush hour traffic. Here's one for you, Chris. Maine has the lowest average car insurance rate. It's 3.3 times lower than in Louisiana. Um, wow. That's a shocker to me. I mean, what's your take on this list of what I, I've told you so far?
1: Well, it is interesting you bring up insurance rates because I just bought a 2010 Porsche Cayenne GTS. And even with the giant V8 and you know everything else that comes along with basically buying a sports car, uh, my insurance rates were, were pretty good. I was pretty surprised. You know, I think I can relate it to, and you mentioned Iowa there as one of the better states to drive. I've driven across Iowa. I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, I can see how the sort of wide open space of the road Uh, would be safer or easier to drive on, fewer accidents, maybe higher speed limits, that sort of thing. Uh, The condition of the roads is a big thing. You know, here in Maine, we get bad, bad weather. And at the end of the winter, I can guarantee that even our main roads are going to be chewed up with plows and everything else. So it's interesting that the metrics there, uh, you know, like I said, Iowa is just a big flat state with a lot of straight lines. So uh, I could see that being an easy place to drive. But your neck of the woods, Jack, as much as I love Southern California, uh, I'd almost want to hire a driver if I had the money and lived there.
0: Well, it is a, a challenging place to drive. At the same time, I think a lot of the drivers are pretty professional about it. I've been to other states, and uh, the volume of traffic out here kind of forces the fact that uh, you have to obey some rules. Although I ha- will say, after having driven 500 miles over the course of the last weekend in the state of California, there's a lot of speeding going on. A lot of <laughs> like crazy speeding going on. Uh, yeah,
1: it's interesting. The, if you go to Boston, so Boston's the largest, the largest major city to where I live and you drive there for any amount of time and anybody will, will give you the sort of stereotypical rundown of a Boston driver. Uh, it seems like it's organized chaos, but you know, if you ride with somebody who lives there, they get used to the speed of operation and the number of cars on the road, you kind of adapt to it. So, uh, who knows? (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think the typical Southern California driver and and, uh, areas certainly in Northern California as well, uh, the urban areas around San Francisco, Oakland through there, uh, there's just such a volume of traffic that you get used to tons of traffic around you and you uh, adapt to it. My my commute used to be 45 miles uh, each way uh, and I spent a lot of time on uh, the 405 freeway. So uh, uh, I got to see a lot of traffic out there. I think a state like Hawaii, which is apparently the worst state in which to drive, a lot of that has to do with fuel costs. It's, it's really expensive to drive in Hawaii, and I bet they don't have that many repair shops either. One of the things interesting about the study to me was that California has the most repair shops per population, 7.5 times more than in Hawaii state with the fewest repair shops. So that's going on. You can figure out whether uh, you're in a good state to drive in or a poor state to drive in. Well, let's talk a bit about the uh, the final V12. This is the final use of the BMW V12 engine that has been around for quite a while. BMW has announced that they are going to uh, fit that V12 into the last series production road vehicle. And to mark the occasion, They will offer what they call the final V12 version of the M760i xDrive, to be exact. And only 12 of them will be built uh, available in America. More than 12 will be built across the world, but 12 will be available in America. And it will have an MSRP of a very round figure of $200,000 What's your take on the? You probably driven some V12 uh, BMWs through the years. What's your take on the uh, the fact that this engine is going away?
1: I have, and I've driven a couple of V12 powered Mercedes AMGs as well. So you know, I can say that it's not surprising to see that the V12 is going away. You know, Mercedes made a stink about l- at least trimming back the number of V8s that they were pr- pr- uh, producing last year. So uh, with the world going hybrid, electric, and and using batteries, it's not surprising to see. I will say that it is disappointing. Uh, but the writing has been on the wall for a while, Jack. If you recall, BMW moved to, I think, a twin-turbo 4.4-liter V8, and a lot of their high-performance cars, higher-performance sedans and coupes, rather than a larger V8 that without the turbos. Uh, and even the M3 has moved to a turbo V6 and things like that. So smaller engines, forced induction is the way to go, at least until we move to a fully electric world, uh, which BMW is already well on the way to doing as well. So. Uh, you know, this $200,000 car, which I should remind you is $200,000 before destination. Uh, you have to add another $995 to that just, just to get it delivered. But uh, it's an impressive send off. I mean, it's sad, but again, not surprising.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to put this in perspective. The first V12 uh, had 295 horsepower, the first V12 powered 750 IL that was uh, available in the United States. 295 horsepower Uh, seemed like a lot at the time i guess it was five liter engine now the v12 that's on the way out is a 6.6 liter engine it has twin turbo technology uh, a bunch of other technology and it produces 601 horsepower 601 horsepower Uh, it will the final v12 the model itself will go from 0 to 60 in 3.6 seconds like mind blowing, right?
1: Yeah, in such a large car, I drove a an Alpina B Seven, which is based on the the Seven Series, and it it's just a rocket ship. You don't even feel the speed, so it's amazing that such a large car can move so quickly.
0: Right. If you pony up this two hundred thousand dollars plus, as you mentioned, the nine hundred ninety five dollar uh, delivery charge, <laughs> which actually is quite low. <laughs> You're gonna see uh, destination charges much higher than that on on much lower priced vehicles. But uh, if as the customer takes delivery soon after they will receive a custom-built desk trophy to commemorate their their vehicle it will have their special order paint leather and vehicle identification number on it so uh you know a little bonus for your uh 200,000 bucks and uh, probably worthwhile here's another uh, bit of bmw information i found interesting and uh i was actually a bit amazed by it it BMW set a new U.S. production record in 2021, and they built more than 400,000 vehicles in the United States. I mean, that's a number that kind of blows me away, Chris. What's your reaction to that?
1: It, it blows me away too, Jack. I mean, it, it makes sense. You you make your cars close to where one of your largest markets to buy those cars is. It seems like it, it you know, it's a no-brainer. But the sheer number of cars they're producing here, uh, South Carolina and elsewhere, is just it's staggering.
0: I really wonder if some BMW owners sense that the vehicle they are driving was built in uh, the Carolinas as opposed to uh, uh, overseas.
1: Yeah, you know, you would wonder if, if that makes them feel a little bit less exclusive or not. But at the end of the day, they're still getting a BMW design product and they're still paying BMW prices. So I think it would probably pan out OK.
0: Yeah, I think the good news, too, is they're getting BMW quality all, the way, all around, too. Yes. I think the Spartanburg plant is a great plant for quality. And uh, so congratulations to them and congratulations to the American uh, car uh, car worker who does a great job building BMWs, among other vehicles. Well, when we come back, we will be road testing some vehicles, including the 2022 Jeep Compass that Chris Teague was driving. And I was at the wheel of the Honda Accord Hybrid for many, many miles. So stay with us for that. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. Welcome back to America on the Road. It is road test time here on America on the Road and with co-host Chris Teague. This is Jack D. with you. Thanks so much for being with us on America on the Road. Chris, you were driving a vehicle that I have enjoyed driving uh, in the past several years, but I I guess I haven't driven it in a while, and that is the uh, Jeep Compass. Why don't you tell us all about it?
1: Yeah, you're right, Jack. It's been a few years since I drove one as well, but the 2022 model picked up a few things that I think actually really helped the Compass and make it more uh, livable on a daily basis, if you want to call it that. Um, in any case, I tested the Trailhawk model, which starts around $34,000. It's one of several trims that Jeep offers for the, the Compass. There's the Sport at the bottom end, which is around 28 dollars and then the high-altitude trim at the very top, which is around 36, dollars a little bit more than $36,000. Uh, But for 2022, Jeep updated the exterior styling, gave it a new, uh, a light facelift and some uh, updated tech on the inside, which I'll get to in a little bit, uh, which really helps the interior experience. But standard, it comes with a front-wheel drive and a six-speed automatic transmission. The Trailhawk, which is the off-road, sort of more rugged version, gets beefier tires. Uh, It gets four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive and then a nine-speed automatic transmission. And Jack, I want to get your feel on this because the Compass and the Jeep Cherokee and the compact crossovers that Jeep makes, they're competing against vehicles like the RAV4 and uh, the CRV. How do you think they stack up? I mean, they're a little bit more rugged. They're a little bit more off-road oriented, but they still have to do the same job.
0: They do have to do the same job. And they kind of do that in a way by offering versions that are more on-road oriented than off-road oriented. I think uh, if you were just going to drive on the road, there are probably better choices than the Jeep Compass in the compact SUV crossover segment, and you've mentioned some of them. <laughs> but at the same time, I think if you're going to do any off-roading, or you just want that aura of being in a Jeep, and I, I get that—you want to ch- join the Jeep Club—I uh, think the Compass is a is a good choice.
1: I agree, and you know, we talked earlier about the quality of roads here in Maine. I got to tell you that. Uh, we got a nice ice slush storm a couple of days ago, and I was in the Compass, and you know, it just cruises right through all of it. And I think the Trailhawk model, with like I said, it's got the beefier tires and, and everything. It handles the roads, the, the poor-quality roads of winter here very, very well. It's got a 2.4-liter four-cylinder engine making just 180 horsepower and 175 pound-feet of torque. I say just because it's not a quick vehicle, but I, I don't think it needs to be. Uh, it's very relaxed off the line uh makes a perfect in-town cruiser. I wouldn't count on it being uh, mind-blowing on the highway or winning any uh, drag races against a RAV4 or a CRV, for that matter. Uh, but it's an adequate amount of power, and the engine is relatively quiet and stays out of the way. So driving around town in this thing is uh, comfortable, it's relaxed, it's quiet. So no complaints there. And as I mentioned, in the snow and the, the muck that we had here a couple of days ago, the selectable drive modes uh, for the all-wheel drive system include snow, sand, and mud. I had it parked in snow mode, and I plowed right through it with absolutely no problems whatsoever. And, and there was plenty of ice on the road too, so no issues there. I think this is a great, great vehicle for people who live where I do, where the air hurts your face for parts of the year. Uh, inside, it's got an 8.4-inch standard touchscreen. Mine came up with the mine came with the upgraded 10.1-inch uh, upgrade, which is a touchscreen running UConnect 5. This is the latest edition of the. Uh, Stellantis or Fiat Chrysler infotainment uh, software. Jack, you and I have talked about this many times. It's colorful, it's intuitive, it's responsive. Uh, I had a little bit of trouble finding the heated seats and heated steering wheel in the vehicle, but once I did, it it all made sense the way things are are laid out. Um, Elsewhere inside, uh, the Trailhawk model has leather and cloth seats, or it should be synthetic leather and cloth seats, which uh, should be easy to clean if you get them dirty out on the trail. Uh, like I said earlier, it's got heated seats and a heated steering wheel. The top trims of this, you can get it with, with leather upholstery and really nice interior finishes. But I think that for the sort of rugged uh, attitude of the Trailhawk model, this interior fits it well. Plenty of room up front for me. I'm six feet tall. I'm able to get a nice uh, high driving position without bumping into my uh, now nine-year-old daughter in the back seat. Uh, she turned nine today. And uh, my other daughter, five-year-old on the other side, has plenty of room for her larger booster seat. And uh, my wife was able to ride in the front seat with no problems at all. Uh, Plenty of cargo space in the back. The back seats fold down to open up even more. And, uh, you know, all around, Jack, I think this is a great option for people, like I said earlier, who might live where there's a little bit more uh, rough road to deal with or bad weather. And as you said, anyone who wants to go off road, uh, this might be the choice for them. So uh, pretty nice vehicle all around.
0: It is a nice vehicle. And happy birthday uh, to your daughter. That's a a marvelous uh, age to be. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I guess it was. I, I can almost remember that far back. Well, I was driving a car that I enjoyed a whole lot is the Honda Accord Hybrid. And I, I would say that probably Honda doesn't get the kudos it deserves for their hybrids, at least this Accord Hybrid. This is a vehicle that I really liked a lot. I was going on a fairly lengthy trip uh, from my home in Southern California up to, North. Uh, you know, I guess Central California, Uh, And then back home, uh, 500 miles in total, uh, maybe a little bit more. And so I put the word out. And Honda came through with the Accord Hybrid, and it turned out to be a great, great choice. One of the interesting things about their hybrid system is it's it's different from many of the hybrid systems out there. They use a two-motor hybrid system. It gives better throttle response. And I think a a good feeling of natural acceleration. It also feels strong because it starts out as all electric. And so you have a a lot of uh, torque right from the get-go there. 232 pound-feet of torque at idle. Uh, Of course, I guess an electric motor doesn't idle. It just sits there idle in a different way uh, until it starts providing power. So this is a really interesting vehicle. It has brake-by-wire technology that has regenerative braking, but at the same time, it doesn't feel weird. It feels uh, very natural. So this is a, a hybrid system that uh, in a lot of ways is, is very different from the hybrid systems we're used to uh, in, say, a, a Toyota Prius or uh, one of the many Toyota h- uh, hybrid models. What's your take on on that, Chris?
1: I completely agree with you. You know, when, when Honda made the revisions to their hybrid powertrains, I think it was 2019 or maybe even early 2020, I kind of rolled my eyes because they went on for pages and pages about what they were doing to improve the powertrain. And then I drove one of their the vehicles. And as you mentioned, the brake-by-wire, uh, it doesn't grab and you know yank your sunglasses off when you touch the brake pedal to do the regenerative braking. They focused a lot on uh, the feeling and the, the sensation of pressing down on the gas pedal, pressing down on the brake pedal, and it's something that they've been able to achieve that other automakers haven't. Like you said, acceleration is smooth, braking is smooth, uh, and it feels like you're driving a normal car.
0: Yeah, when you really get on the gas, you are hearing some uh, interesting sounds from under the hood and that's because a lot of things are going on that aren't normal, (laughs) and and those things that aren't normal are actually quite good uh, because they give you great drivability. It switches, uh, the hybrid switches between EV drive, electrical drive, hybrid drive, which is both electric motor and gasoline engine, and then engine drive, depending on what's most efficient. It also has multiple modes, sport, EV, and econ modes, so you can just push the buttons and get those. I think the thing that kind of the, the kicker here is the amount of range you have. You can have something like 600 miles of range on a tank full of gas. That's kind of nice. And fuel economy of uh, around 48 miles per gallon. My observed fuel economy was somewhat lower than that. I think I probably have a bit of a heavier right foot than some other people do. And I, I was driving on uh, freeways and, and those kind of highways most of the time, when you don't get all the benefit, actually, of a hybrid that you would get if you drove it a lot around town. Certainly, the Accord is a vehicle that we like a whole lot. I mean, uh, what you take on interior accommodations in the in the Accord?
1: Well, the Accord has always been uh, a great family vehicle with plenty of room. Uh, I've owned two previous generation cars and have driven the most recent generation. Uh, back seat back seat space is excellent. It's a quiet car inside. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, they, they, they do a good job with tech and and configuration. So, uh, the Honda is an excellent, I mean, the Accord, I should say is an excellent package, uh, with great value for the people. And, you know, the, the hybrid makes a great, uh, sort of intermediate step for someone looking to adopt a more green vehicle without going all the way to an EV.
0: I think that's absolutely true. Uh, One of the things that I think you and I have both commented about this in other Hondas that we've driven recently is the wireless Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, how seamless uh, that is. There's also wireless charging in the Accord. So a lot of advantages there. Uh, I would not say that their infotainment system is Quite as clear as some of the best of them out there, but it still operated very, very well. And uh, if you're using your smartphone most of the time, you certainly understand how that works. So uh, all in all, this was a terrific vehicle to have uh, for the purposes that I used it. Uh, which was to shuttle my, my wife and myself up to uh, visit one of our college-age daughters up at, up at school and spend some time with her, buy her some groceries and, and lunch and dinner, and then come back. So it was a, a marvelous trip, and I think the Honda Accord Hybrid was just about perfect at doing that. You can get a Honda Accord Hybrid for as little as about $28,000. The vehicle we had was much more uh, well-equipped. We had the Accord Hybrid uh, Touring Model. And the MSRP was about $37,000 on this vehicle, still uh, below the median price people are paying for cars these days. So it's all around a... Just an excellent vehicle, I think.
1: I agree. And with a range of almost 600 miles, you can't beat it.
0: I love that range. I love not having to go to the gas station. We actually filled it up at a a big box store, got in the line at the big box store, and put in only about seven or eight gallons after going more than 200 miles to get up there. I had half a tank or something like that. So life was good. Life was good driving the Honda Accord Hybrid. I think it's it's quite a value and probably the Accord model to buy these days. And when we come back, we have our interview with Dave Sowers, who is the marketing head for Ram commercial vehicles, talking a bit about uh, Ram commercial vehicles, work trucks, and, uh, and also Ram commercial vehicles that are being used by a lot of RVers these days. So we'll chat a bit about that. Stay with us for that with Chris Teague. This is Jack Nierad with you. And we're really glad you're with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jack Murad with you. We have a great guest for you. Dave Sowers is uh, head of marketing for Ram Commercial Vehicles. Thanks so much for being with us. We do appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Jack. Tell us what's new on the commercial side of the uh, industry. It's a a fascinating thing. We hear so much about supply chain, and and certainly commercial vehicles are right in the midst of that. Tell us uh, what's going on.
2: You know, uh, commercial vehicles are a very hot topic here recently somewhat because of the supply chain issues that we're seeing as a country but really there's a lot of pent-up demand for commercial business that's going on out there and therefore those businesses have a lot of demand in vehicles and so uh, like other vehicle segments it's a very hot segment right now there's a lot of demand and um, you know i think we're really enjoying some success from a ram perspective so it's it's exciting for us right now
0: what are the vehicles that are most popular right now it seems like covered vehicles large enclosed vehicles are, are big and they become big even on the uh, consumer side actually being used as campers and that kind of thing talk a bit about
2: that yeah that? that's right and from a Ram brand perspective we're known for pickup trucks primarily and and this market the US market is the pickup market of the whole world really it's where pickups are sold the most uh, but as you other mentioned, countries
0: don't really use pickup trucks the way we do, do they? I no, mean, no.
2: their commercial vehicles are way different. That's correct. The, the pickups that they use elsewhere are uh, very Spartan, very functional, and uh, not used a lot for personal business, uh, or excuse me, personal use. That's different here in the States, of course. Um, and uh, But what you're seeing is a little bit of a transition. Uh, we're seeing where... Uh, large and small vans are becoming more and more prevalent, and as you mentioned, covered uh, vehicles, and that's that's true on the commercial side. Uh, vocational customers, uh, for us, uh, in the B two B world, uh, go out and do mobile type work. So they're the plumbers, electricians that come to your house. They're they're mobile doing pet
0: grooming, all you know,
2: hairdressing, all kinds of uh, stuff. Right? That's right. Everything is done mobile now. Right? So. Uh, And I think that's a trend that's not going to reverse itself. And then the second thing uh, really is uh, delivery. And there's no question about that really, right? So final mile delivery has become a big deal. It was already growing. And then uh, the global pandemic really kicked it into overdrive. And again, that's a trend that I don't think is going to reverse. I think that's going to move forward. And then the last piece of where we're seeing vans uh, being used a lot is in that personal space. There's a whole trend out there around van life. Uh, If you were to Google hashtag van life, you'd see that there's hundreds of uh, subject matter experts, um, there are hundreds of thousands of followers of these people and basically they give up everything that they have and build their own van and and live in it. And, And then there's also the more formalized, more traditional RV space where people live their normal life and they use um, a van for their uh, getaways Um, so it's more of a recreational thing for them and uh, it's what's interesting there is it's moving away from the traditional larger RVs kind of like the small house trend uh, but it's it's happening on the RV side as well with vans
0: so tell our listeners about some specific vehicles because you're talking about vehicles from pretty small you know, smaller than the, the typical passenger car, I would imagine the typical passenger SUV, to some very large vehicles. Tell us a bit about the, the broad mo- model line.
2: Yeah, and uh, from a Ram perspective, we have two vans in our lineup. We have a Ram Promaster City, which is on the small side, um, and we call it City because it's more of a city van. It's used for uh, those shorter distances and uh, the smaller tasks. It's a very functional van. Uh, we offer it in a van and a wagon. Uh, primarily sold though as a cargo van, and
0: the wagon would be passenger vehicle.
2: Yes, that's yeah. correct, and yeah. and it goes up to five passenger with some cargo space left. Uh, that's that's a very functional vehicle, not a very luxurious vehicle, uh, and it's got a a mission to accomplish. Most of those customers are commercial customers in that in that space. And so, what
0: are tradespeople? What kind of folks buy the that, those vehicles?
2: Yeah, it's tradespeople. Uh, it's small delivery. It's catering. Uh, we see a lot of food service businesses. Uh, it's possible to refrigerate those vehicles. So a lot of these niche businesses that have uh, developed, whether it be um, ice cream, whether it be catering. There's some restaurants now that are using a commissary operation where they have a central kitchen and they have several outlets that, uh, that use the food and they have to uh, be very uh, timely about their deliveries, both in terms of having fresh food, but also maintaining the temperature of those foods. So they do smaller batches and those smaller vans work very well uh, for those folks. Um, so we have that small van end of the segment that does those type of things but the part of the van segment well and let me just for
0: context give uh, our listeners the idea of price of these vehicles
2: yeah so the the small van segment is really in the 25,000 to 32,000 range mm-hmm. uh, maybe a little bit more if there was a high end passenger van in there, but that's a very small part of that business. It's really that 25 to 32 yeah. uh, range, and very functional. I'm sorry, yes.
0: and I interrupted. You're you going to tell me about the larger view.
2: Yeah, that's fine. And the where we're seeing a lot of growth, and the whole industry is seeing the growth, is in the large van space, and specifically in the class two space, which is a large van but with a weight rating that is uh, between 8,500 pounds and 10,000 pounds. So, that's the majority of the vans that you see out on the road. Um, all the delivery vans uh, that you're seeing pop up in the final mile space those are class two vans so that growth is really happening because of those vacations we talked about which are, which are mobile businesses and delivery and those type of things and there, as a result of the demand that's there uh, we're starting to see innovation that happens in that space as well and it's it's really interesting because uh, as a long-time industry veteran and and yourself as a long-time industry reporter you'll know that there's uh, not a lot of change that happened in pickups for a long time Uh, until the mid 90s you started to see some innovation and pickup trucks change vans were much the same way they were all body on frame uh, front engine rear-wheel drive Uh, most of them were pickup truck derived, frankly Um, for from 1970 through uh, the the two thousands really there is no change in the formula of that vehicle and you're seeing now the influence of European vans come in and those are uh, unibody by and large which is a more efficient um, way to structure the vehicle to use the space inside all of the passenger cars and most SUVs have been unibody for a long time right right so you're seeing that unit that unibody influence from Europe and, and you,
0: you had specific uh, European influence, right, when you were owned by Daimler.
2: Oh, absolutely, right? So yes. uh,
0: a lot of that, I think,
2: right, yeah, we were permeated
0: the, uh, what was going on at Ram.
2: We were the first ones to bring in the European-style van uh, way back when. I worked on that project, <laughs> interestingly enough. Um, and um, that one was a front-engine rear-wheel drive, but it was unibody and um, had the European styling that people are familiar with now on these large vans. Uh, The product we have now is the Ram ProMaster. It also uh, comes to us from Europe. It was originally designed there. Uh, The uh, van space is very mature and very well developed there. So it's good for us to be able to tap into the expertise that they have and bring the product here. Um, So the Ram ProMaster is a unibody front-engine, front-wheel drive and ProMaster is unique in the large van segment from that perspective. Um, And we we get some advantages from that. And of course, there are a lot of differences with our van from the European van. Our powertrain that we have here is unique. We have a Pentastar V6 uh, as our base only engine, frankly. Um, And now new for 2022, we're bringing in a nine speed automatic front wheel drive. So that whole powertrain is North America specific as it relates to the tried and
0: true boy that <laughs> Penastar engine has been around oh, has absolutely it absolutely has and, and, yeah. and this
2: is actually the Penastar upgrade which gets a little more efficient uh, it widens the torque band out a little bit um, the peak torque and horsepower don't change but the vehicle uh, is better from an emissions perspective and it's more efficient so your
0: vans have to serve a bunch of different customers with a myriad of needs, right? So flexibility's got to be key and allowing them to customize for their particular use is key. Talk a bit about that, would you?
2: Yeah, that's actually a very good question and something we spend a lot of time on. There's a number of ways we deal with that, uh, being able to serve the customer's ultimate mission. One is to offer a number of different configurations. So we have three different wheelbases, four different vehicle lengths, two different roof heights. We offer cab chassis versions, cutaway versions, that's a, a cab with no rear wall that uh, an upfitter would attach a, a body to. Um, and we have window versions that allow um, an upfitter to put seats in the back uh, or other type of conversion. And. Um, we're also bringing in a crew van now for 22 so it's a factory version that has a second row of seats with a partition behind it so now you have uh, up to five uh, five or up to six passenger seating in that full-size van uh, so it's and a then a
0: full space behind it a, a giant space i that's would imagine right. right
2: on our longest van you can have six passenger seating plus eight feet of storage behind it and it's all enclosed so uh, that's kind of a, l- a new formula to be able to do that so that the first piece is to offer all those different configurations from the factory the second piece then is to make it upfit friendly right mm-hmm. so how can these people make it their own and I mentioned in the van life space nearly a hundred percent of those people are doing some or all of that work themselves to turn it into a, a, a home that can travel with them yeah and uh, literally their home yeah. in, in a lot of ways in right? some cases they, yeah. that's their only domicile is the vehicle so what we've done there is We've made it easy to tap into the vehicle electrical system uh, by providing upfit connectors and um, tap-ins for speakers and communication to the vehicle.
0: Because it's not good for people to splice into wiring and and that that kind of thing, right? That's right. you want fusing. You want the, the proper kind of safety.
2: We don't even like for the professionals to do that kind of thing, much less the do-it-yourselfers, um, because they don't know what they can affect, right? And this, the electrical systems are very sophisticated in these vehicles, and there's many safety features that are tied in as well that you don't want to, in any way, affect negatively. So, uh, we provide clean ways for them to tie in up uh, to the electrical system. Uh, That's all standard on ProMaster. We provide an auxiliary fuel tap as standard. So if you want to draw from the gasoline tank to run a gasoline powered heater, um, you can do that. That tap in is standard. Uh, And then from a physical perspective, we make it very easy to upfit the ProMaster van as well. And that's by, uh, we have the lowest load floor height of any van, so it's easier to step in and out of, but it also gives you some flexibility on how you upfit this thing and how you build it. Um, from the ground up. We have the widest uh, interior width, 75.6 inches, which for those van lifers and the RV customers, you can fit a full-size mattress sideways in the van, which is a great way to package uh, the sleeping situation um, and maximize the amount of the remaining space. And it's the only uh, full-size van in the U.S. where you can do that. So ProMaster has become kind of a favored uh, product to be able to do that upfit because of the dimensions inside. We also have nearly vertical sidewalls, so you're not dealing with a big curvature there to try to cut um, and, and do your upfit. So, and what kind of roof height? I mean, it, it strikes me these have a lot of headroom these days. Uh, that, that's them. correct. Right. Um, in fact, Ram Promaster has the tallest standard roof height at five feet, six inches. Um, and then we get another 10 inches taller for our um, highest roof height um so we're at six feet four inches and so six feet four that's 90 percent of people can stand upright inside even if you put some roofing in and do some other things
0: even my partner on the radio show who is six feet tall and he tells us about that in every show
2: can fit in that i'm eleven, so i should be fine too yes that's absolutely right so that's one of the big advantages as opposed to in the old world where pickup trucks might somebody might put a cap on it or something like that you have very little Uh, flexibility in terms of vertical space and now these vans are giving you a lot of that and it's finished that way from the factory so it's watertight you don't have any issues with wind noise or air leaks or water leaks we're doing all the right things in terms of having the clearance lamps on the vehicle and and it meets all the standards with that high roof height and you can use it as a blank canvas to build within well Dave Sowers thanks so much for being with us we appreciate it I appreciate it thanks for the
0: opportunity Jack Stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Christine Jack Nyrad back with you for Listener Question Time. This is our final segment of this week's show. The the hour goes so fast, and uh, I love talking with Chris about cars and what's going on in the car industry. And this, again, is the listener question portion of the program, and I think we have a very good question for Chris right here. This is from Simone. Simone is in San Antonio, Texas. And this is what she asks I'm confused about the MSRP. What is that? Is that the price I should pay or should I try to negotiate a lower price? And how does the MSRP work in a lease?
1: Well, (laughs) let's get into this. So the MSRP is the price that the manufacturer suggests. That the rep it's the manufacturer suggested retail price. It's the price that the manufacturer believes that you should be paying at the dealership. It is not the price that the dealership pays the manufacturer to get that vehicle, and nor is it the price that you may end up paying depending on uh, any discounts or rebates or, in this case, markups. You might be seeing markups at, at your local dealer, uh, and and that could be something that you have to contend with. But if you're asking yourself, can I negotiate MSRP, can I get money down or can I get money off? And the answer is usually yes. I mean, as mentioned, we're in the middle of a, a downturn right now with, with vehicle supplies, so prices are up. But in general, uh, in normal times, it's not too hard to find uh, rebates and discounts across the board.
0: You should try to negotiate a, pr- a lower price than the MSRP in most occasions. And that's probably still very doable, even in these days of uh, very tightened supply. But as you point out, Chris, depending on the vehicle, some might be actually marked up to a price above the suggested retail price. I would say this, too, about the MSRP in a lease. A lot of people don't even pay any attention to negotiating that price down in a lease because they just look at the lease monthly payment and and, uh, essentially go from there. But you can negotiate that price down from MSRP. Uh, That's called capitalized cost in a lease. Look to negotiate that down, but uh, that's how MSRP works, and we hope we've helped Simone with that. And uh, we're glad, so glad, that uh, Chris Teague is back with us and back among the living. Chris, always wonderful to speak with you.
1: Thank you so much for having me again, Jack, and welcoming me back, and thanks everybody for listening. I'll say if you like what you heard and you want to listen to us on the go, you can head to sportsmapradio.com and view us on the Saturday schedule and get our podcast library there, both from Apple and elsewhere.
0: Absolutely. We'd love to have you do that. And we'd love to have you join us again right here next week for another edition of America on the Road. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and drivingtoday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at mercuryinsurance.com. And if you're looking to buy a new car, a used car, or just care about cars, go to drivingtoday.com. There is a world of automotive information available for you at drivingtoday.com. It's the official automotive website of America on the Road. That's drivingtoday.com.